Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Lots and lots of interesting basketball to talk about today. I know two of the games are blowouts, but I found both of them to be interesting blowouts. And then we had 
the the back burner game, the NBA TV game, the Utah Jazz at the Dallas Mavericks, an unbelievable exciting performance. Lots of interesting stuff to get into there. We're going to get into all of it. We're also going to do hold or bail. I'm going to tell you guys whether or not I'm sticking with my series picks from the matchups from yesterday. We are going to bring Carson on as well. It's going to be a great show, but let's start with Golden State and Denver. So Denver obviously has a boatload of issues. We're going to get to that later. Um, the game wasn't even close. Like that's it wasn't remotely competitive. The series is over. You can go ahead and uh, start making the tombstone for the 2021-2022 Denver Nuggets. And yet I found this game remarkably interesting. Why? Because it felt like stepping into a time machine and coming out in 2015 in Oracle Arena during the rise of the Warriors. And I picked specifically 2015 because it was kind of before it became a more Steph-centric uh, show. Obviously, Steph was the MVP in 2015. He damn sure should have won finals MVP that year, and he was clearly a top 3-4 player in the league, but there was another leap that he took as an aggressive scorer the following year, bumped up from 23 points per game to 30 points per game. The 2015 season was much more of like this new brand of basketball we were seeing. And it was catching everybody off guard. Teams didn't know how to guard it. It was super likable basketball. It drew in all these fans for good reason. Like I've said many times on the show, good basketball I'm always going to support because that's the kind of thing that helps with the health of the league. But there was a very unique nature to the way that group played basketball, and they incepted this concept of the death lineup, which was kind of a modern iteration of small ball, right? And if you guys remember that lineup, it was Harrison Barnes and Andre Iguodala with Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and Steph Curry. And teams didn't really have any idea how to handle that group. So many teams around the league were still playing too bigs. They were too slow to keep up with that lineup. There was a ton of speed, but there were some very unique reasons why that lineup worked. And you saw that again in this game, in this series, the same lineup that pulled away in game one, the same lineup that came back in game two and then put the game away was a similar construct. Steph, Clay, and Draymond with a three and D wing in Andrew Wiggins kind of filling in for that Harrison Barnes role. The only difference is you're going with Jordan Poole instead of Andre Guadala. And once again, the Denver Nuggets couldn't do anything with them. And the reason why is because on the offensive end of the floor, there is a, a, a very special brand of basketball that the Warriors play. It's selfless. Everyone is hunting for shots for each other. There, and this has, been a, this has been a persistent theme throughout the Golden State era. If you guys remember, there was a famous play in the towards the end of the Kevin Durant run where one of the young players on the Warriors drove into the lane and Clay Thompson was... On, uh, on the wing, Kevin Durant was on the wing, and Steph Curry was on the wing, and all three of them were wide open. And if you guys remember, there's a famous photo, all of them were pointing at each other, trying to get them to pass to the other guy, because there was this contagious culture in the team. It was make that extra drive and kick, make, sure extra, make that extra pass, make that extra play for your teammate. And as a result, it led to this infectious style of basketball that caused major problems for everyone around the league, not just in their skill on the perimeter, but also the overall speed of the lineup. Draymond Green is such a mobile big, and when you put four really fast, really skilled players alongside him, they leave these slower traditional teams in the dust, and there's nothing they can do about it. 
The style of play is not for everybody. There are certain guys that go into that program and it doesn't work out super well. I remember Kelly Oubre. This was a big issue. I've talked about this a lot on the show. For, for whatever reason in Golden State, it didn't work out for him. But before that, and then this year when he was in Charlotte, he kind of recaptured that solid role player you know, archetype that he had in the rest of his career. But for whatever reason in Golden State, it didn't work because it requires that high basketball IQ. Everyone's very, very smart. Kelly Oubre is a good basketball player. Basketball IQ is not a strong point. It requires unselfishness and a willingness to make plays for your teammates. There are players that have not had not done well in that particular environment. But for whatever reason, the guys that go in there and fit, it makes the whole thing work. And Jordan Poole just adds this whole other element to it. It makes it less heliocentric, not in the traditional way, like guy up at the top of the key dribbling the ball, but they're less reliant on Steph now. And the most important thing, and the only reason this lineup functions at all whatsoever, is they defend. And I want to give, obviously, a lot of people deserve credit for that. Steve Kerr deserves credit for that. Each individual player deserves credit for that. But there are two guys that I want to specifically shout out about that, and that's Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Steph Curry is six foot three. He's pretty strong, but he's a below average athlete and doesn't have the physical tools, the length and athleticism to be a dominant defensive player. And he could have very well turned into the next Dame Lillard if he wanted to. If he didn't care. If he wanted to save his legs for offense. But he was like, screw that. I'm going to be the best possible defender that I can possibly be given the tools that I have. And as a result, it has led to this culture that has trickled down the roster. If you're a perimeter player, you're not off the hook on defense. And that's why it works with Jordan Poole in that group. Obviously, Jordan Poole has some limitations, and so does Steph, and you can't have too many of those guys on the floor. And there are obviously good defensive players in Clay Thompson and Andrew Wiggins and Draymond Green that help make the whole thing work. But it's a huge credit to, to Steph Curry in the tone that he sets and the way that that trickles down the roster. It's something I've been critical about with LeBron at some points in his career. And LeBron's been my favorite player in the league for a long time. I think he's a better basketball player than Steph, and I think he always has been. But one of the things I've been critical about him with is for whatever reason, he kind of seems like on a lot of nights, it's like, it's not my job to play defense. You guys figure that out. I have all this other work to do. I'll defend when I absolutely have to. And it's not a big surprise that there are guys that have come onto LeBron teams and have not defended well because they kind of just get wrapped up into his mentor, like his whole approach to the game. Steph's not like that. Steph sets a tone, and everyone else follows suits. It's, it's one of my favorite things about him, and it's why I think he's the best leader in this era of NBA basketball. But the linchpin of it all is Draymond Green. He is the quarterback of that defense. Now, I don't want to got, dive too much into the details specifically surrounding quarterbacking a defense because we're going to talk about that in more detail later on in the show when we talk about Marcus Smart being the defensive player of the year. But... He does that for this specific defense. And then the most important thing that he does as a backline defender is he is a master of understanding position and disrupting a player's base. How is it that at six foot six that he can be so disruptive to these massive post players? I have seen him in the last couple of years completely and utterly fluster Anthony Davis in a single game playoff situation last year in the playing game. And then you saw what he did to Nikola Jokic tonight, literally frustrating him to the point where he lost his cool and got himself ejected from the damn game. And the reason why is because Draymond Green is the kryptonite to position post players. 
We talked a little bit about, last night, we talked about Jason Tatum and the pivotal play that he made rotating around Kyrie Irving. Because in when you're in back-to-the-basket situations, it's all about feeling where your defender is. Is he on my left shoulder? Is he on my right shoulder? I'm going to spin the other way because that's where my advantage is with physicality. Guys like Nikola Jokic, who aren't super fast, Guys like Anthony Davis that don't have a super quick first step, they rely a lot on body positioning in the post. Jokic way more than Anthony Davis even. And so he's trying to figure out where Draymond Green on is on his back, but Draymond Green is always one step ahead of Jokic on all those little pivots and turns, and he's pushing Jokic off of his base and making every shot that he takes around the basket so incredibly difficult. Draymond is what makes that entire defense work. There are very specific details that I want to get further into with Draymond, but I am going to save that for later in the show. I wanted to move on to Jordan Poole because his rise, in my opinion, unquestionably changes the way that we have to evaluate this Golden State Warriors team ceiling. He, I've always wondered... You know, when you got guys like LeBron and Steph in the league, guys like Kevin Durant, the impact they have on young players that come into contact with them. You know, why is it that, you know, you'll see a guy play with LeBron for so long and for whatever reason, he doesn't adopt the same work ethic that he does or same thing goes with Steph. And I always wonder why that doesn't happen more often, why a player wouldn't get around a star and kind of absorb and, and, and take on the same approach to the game that he does. And I'm not saying Jordan Poole necessarily did this because of Steph, but for whatever reason, Steph has there's a, there is a Steph-like nature to the way Jordan Poole plays that has allowed him to become a player that fits so perfectly in this system. You know, Steph has struggled a little bit this year as the, as the year has progressed. Uh, we've talked about it a lot on this show. His shooting percentages towards the last half of the season were about half what they were at the same time last season. He wasn't getting the same separation on his dribble moves, wasn't able to make those crazy Steph Curry shots the way he used to. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it was Draymond Green being out of the game. But a huge part of it is not having other guys on the floor that dictate defensive attention. And the way that that frees things up for you. I talked about this a lot with the Mavericks and how Luka Doncic being out has been a nightmare for guys like Spencer Dinwiddie. Jalen Brunson had a big game tonight, but Spencer Dinwiddie's having a nightmare series in a bigger role with more defensive attention devoted to him. Obviously, Klay Thompson coming back helps a lot with Steph Curry, but Jordan Poole brings that same type of defensive attention. When Jordan Poole is flying around off the ball, guys panic chase him. You know who else they do that with? Steph. When Jordan Poole comes off of a high screen and roll with Draymond Green, two guys go with Jordan Poole. You know who else they do that with? Steph. And as a result, it's freeing up both guys for easier opportunities. This is the best Steph has looked in this last half of the season. Obviously in small dosage, obviously in a minutes restriction, but Steph looks great. And that's a huge part of what Jordan Poole is bringing to this table. Now, the one thing that gets tricky with Jordan Poole is his his defensive uh, the defensive potential of these key lineups because of his lack of size. I had a lot of people ask me today, do you think the Warriors can beat a huge team? And there will be issues in those matchups. Think about a team like Phoenix, okay? It's not just about DeAndre Ayton. I have no worries about Draymond Green being able to handle DeAndre Ayton, but what if your lineup has, you know, Andrew Wiggins and Clay Thompson and Steph Curry and and uh, uh, Jordan Poole, 
But the, t- the lineup you're going up against is Mikhail Bridges at six foot nine or six foot eight, and Cam jo- uh, Cam Johnson at six foot eight, and Jay Crowder at six foot six and super strong. You know, and, and when 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 the Suns go with more wings, are there going to be issues in those lineups? And that'll be the interesting conundrum because Jordan Poole plugged into that Andre Iguodala role, role while it makes them infinitely better offensively, it also takes away a lot of what they did defensively at the peak of the uh, the death lineup in the 2015-2016 season. Now, they're still defending really well with that group, but it's kind of dependent on matchups. The Denver Nuggets, this we're going to talk about them a little bit more in just a second. The Denver Nuggets have master ro- massive roster shortcomings. They don't have the personnel to keep up with a team like Golden State. So there are going to be matchups further uh, further down the line that can cause them problems, particularly with size. However, the size battle goes both ways. And a lot of it has to do with controlling the pace and flow of the game, which is something I talk about a lot. Styles make fights, but each style has advantages. And more often than not, it's not about which style is better. It's about which style plays better. And so... The advantages of the smaller Golden State lineup with Steph, Clay, Jordan Poole, Wiggins, and Draymond is they are incredibly fast. They can thrive in transition. They can do a ton of switching. They have unbelievable dribble drive creation. So when they get you on a string in a five-out scenario, pass, 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 drive, 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 kick, 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 they get great shots every time. But if they get stuck in the half court a lot and a team is able to inflict their size upon them, they could have some issues. And so when people ask me, can this Golden State Warriors team beat a team that has significant interior presence? It's not a question of can they, it's a question of will they? Will that group play well enough in the details and control the pace of the game so that the big team is caught in a track meet? Because if they do, they're going to win. But if they struggle in those details and they get stuck in the half court and it's Chris Paul slowly and methodically executing on offense in the half court, that's when Golden State could have some issues. But it felt like stepping in the time machine. As a basketball fan, you had to have loved that. There had to have been some moments for you tonight watching that game where it just felt vintage, felt like vintage Warriors basketball. I love their brand of basketball. They've got some of my favorite players in the league, and I love rooting for them. They're the team that I will be rooting for in the West, even though I don't, I still think Phoenix is going to be the team that ends up winning, but it's good to have them back. And, and Jordan Poole changes everything about the franchise, changes their current ceiling, changes their trajectory, changes your five-year plan. It's a bridge to hopefully Jonathan Kaminga and James Wiseman becoming better players. If you're a Warriors fan, you've got to be on cloud nine right now, even if you don't think you can win the title this year. I don't want to spend too much on Denver. They're dealing with a lot of injuries right now. Uh, there's some internal among the fan base. They're kind of sick of Mike Malone. I've got to do some research on that. I don't know well enough what kind of issues they've had with him over the course of the year. But I would say don't overreact to personnel shortcomings. This wasn't like a Lakers team where they had personnel shortcomings and the basketball was just hot garbage. This is a team that has vastly outperformed their talent all season long. So I wouldn't overreact. But there's one specific thing I want to talk about with this group, and it's Jokic. We have a a habit as basketball fans of wanting to jump ahead of player development. And I kind of go the exact opposite direction on that kind of thing. You guys know me. I'm a huge LeBron fan. I don't think LeBron was the best player of the league until 2012. Because even though he had this, his ceiling was as high as all the best players in the league at various points from 2007 to 2012, he wasn't a savant. 
in in the dregs of postseason basketball, the way he became as his career prog- progressed. I thought Kobe was better than him from 2008 to 2011. And for uh, that's just my approach to it. I When everyone's saying Steph's better than LeBron back in 2015 and 2016, I'm like, hey, cool it, guys. He's doing great. There's a lot of basketball left to be played in his career and just within these seasons. And we're doing it. We did it with Giannis when he won his first two MVPs. This is the best player in the league. And then you saw him in half-court sets against Miami, like basically neutered in his ability to impact the game offensively. And he's made leaps since then. And now he's very much in the conversation for best player in the league. But now we're doing it again with Jokic. There were a lot of really smart people that said Jokic was the best player in the league this year. The best player in the league. The best player in the league that has Kevin Durant in it, that has Stephen Curry in it, that has Giannis Antetokounmpo in it, that has LeBron James in it. It's a ridiculous take, in my opinion. And the main reason why is I look, and I know people get, we love to, you know, praise people for succeeding in spite of a limitation, right? It's like we do it with Steph and the fact that he's smaller. We, you know, do it with Luca, even though he's kind of like an out of shape, you know, white guy. And Jokic is the same thing. He's very slow, right? Very methodical. And so we, we kind of romanticize that. Like it's a good thing. And don't get me wrong. Like I too am incredibly impressed by his ability to impact basketball games as a slow man, but it is a real limitation on both ends of the floor. Really, uh, let's start on offense. Where where is his strength? Really, really fast teams that rotate really, really well can disrupt him. You've seen the Warriors do that several times this year. I this entire last half of the season, when he would go up against really long athletic teams, Jokic would struggle compared to his normal effectiveness. He relies a ton on defense or post positioning. And so defenders like Draymond, who are masters of post-position defense, throw him off of his game. That's, that's a limitation on his size. He, what Anthony Davis, when he has success against Draymond, what do you see him do? You see him do these like really quick moves through the lane and big high hooks, and he's, he kind of tries to use his speed because that's the one single advantage he has against Draymond in that environment. But Jokic doesn't have that speed advantage. Then we go over to the defensive end of the floor. I've praised him all year long. He's turned himself into a decent drop coverage big. That's great. It makes him a much more functional regular season defensive player. But the reality of the situation is, is when you run him off the floor in transition, he can't keep up. The Warriors did it again tonight. They've done, a bunch of teams have done that to Jokic over the course of the season. And then, as we've seen so many times, just like with uh, Gobert, which we're going to talk about later, in five-out basketball, when teams really get to driving and kicking, you got to cover a lot of ground. And maybe you're not the you maybe you're maybe you don't get to be the guy that helps at the basket every time. Maybe you get rotated out to the perimeter and now you're guarding a dribble drive. Or maybe one of your smaller guards is suddenly in the backside help position. In five out basketball, that slow foot speed that Jokic has becomes a huge problem. And so, yes, Jokic is incredible. Jokic's best is every bit as good as the best players in the league. But he doesn't get to his best as often because of his weakness to specific matchups, because he has very specific weaknesses in his game. And for the love of God, can we please stop racing to be the first guy to say so-and-so is the best player in the league? Like, I, like I, I don't know what that desire is, but for whatever reason, we're in a rush to crown the next guy. When there's like Kevin freaking Durant at the top of the league and LeBron James and Giannis Antetokounmpo and Steph Curry, 
Even the declined versions of LeBron and Steph, I think, are better than Jokic right now. So we need to, we just need to cool it on that stuff. That's all I had for that game. I want to move on to uh, Toronto and Philly. So I, I talked a lot in the uh, in last night's show about how it, you know Nick Nurse had a very specific game plan, and I disagreed with some elements of the game plan, but they also just didn't play hard. For whatever reason, the Sixers played like the underdog. And a lot of that has to do with guys like me and everyone else out there who picked the Raptors. I think they drank a little too much of their own Kool-Aid. And they went into game one with a lackadaisical effort and it was a problem. And, you know, I had a, a similar thought often this year with Frank Vogel. You can't evaluate a scheme fairly or a game plan fairly if the guys don't play hard. Because no scheme functionally works if guys don't play hard. And so we got a better look at the Toronto scheme tonight with their first quarter effort that came out guns blazing. I think they held the Sixers to seven points in the first five and a half minutes of the game. Much, much better defensive effort. But then everything fell apart as well as the game uh, went along. And a huge part of that is because of that same coverage that I criticized in game one. This needs to be a series for the Raptors where they throw the kitchen sink at Joel Embiid every time he catches the ball. But when James Harden has the ball, they need to try to keep him in one-on-one -on -one situations as much as possible because he's not the same player he was in 2018. Won't get into the numbers again, but all you have to do is look at basic tracking metrics. He's a significantly declined offensive player in isolation situations compared to the way he was in 2018. He is most comfortable being a facilitator. He's wanted to do that the last two years. He's always been at his best when he doesn't have to do the scoring and he can just kind of sit around on the perimeter and get defenses to lean one way or the other so that he can make a pass and compromise you. And Nick Nurse is walking headlong into that problem. And they're just getting fantastic stuff on all of these overhelp scenarios. I'm really curious to see if Nurse makes an adjustment as the series goes along. I've been very critical this year of Frank Vogel and his stubbornness. I tell you guys all the time, like a coach can't come into a situation with a philosophy. He can have some core philosophies, right? Like we try hard on defense. You know, we are on time every day. We work really hard. You know, we box out every time. You know, we those are core philosophies, but you can't come into a situation with a, a scheme that you employ no matter what, regardless of personnel or regardless of situation, because not all situations call for the same scheme and not all personnel call for the same scheme. Nick Nurse is a super aggressive defensive coach, like outrageously aggressive. And there are things that I like about that, you know, his willingness to try crazy things like the box and one that he used on Steph Curry in the 2019 finals. I'm a fan of his, you know, innovative approach to defense. But this is one situation where his aggressiveness is hurting him and hurting the Raptors. This series needs to become a James Harden isolation contest at all costs. Because Tyrese Maxey is killing you right now. Joel Embiid is killing you right now. And a lot of it doesn't have to do with Joel Embiid in isolation situations. Not, of it, not a lot of it has to do with Tyrese Maxey in isolation situations. It's all working off of initial compromising of the defense because of James Harden. They're starting to get easy stuff just out of having Tyrese Maxey set the screen.
when that should just be a really, really quick and easy switch. But way too often, they're sending two guys with James Harden and they're getting amazing stuff on the back end. I'm really, really curious to see if Nick Nurse is going to adjust. We're going to learn a lot. Like I, like I said, very critical of Frank Vogel for being stubborn. I thought it was the reason he got beat or the reason why he got fired. So now we're going to find out if Nick Nurse is willing to make that type of adjustment. I thought the game really got out of hand for the Raptors in that second quarter. And a huge part of it was the way that Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam just completely fell apart offensively. You know, the Raptors need this game to be in transition. They absolutely need the game to be in transition. And the only way that works, and I mean for them, they need to be out in transition. They need to be playing with their set defense. And too often it's been the exact reverse of that. It's been Philly running up and down the floor and Toronto trapped in the half court. And a huge part of that is they have to score because when they score, they can set their defense. When they set their defense, they have a better chance of getting stops. When they get stops, they can run. When they run, they get better scoring opportunities, which allows them to then set their defense. It's a very, it's a very like cascading effect. And if one of those things, one of those links in that chain breaks, suddenly you're not scoring. Suddenly they're running. Suddenly they're getting better shots. Now they're setting their defense, and now you're having an even harder time scoring. And so when Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam cooled off to such a dramatic extent there in that second quarter, the wheels came off, and suddenly Philly got going in transition. You know, Fred Van Vliet, it was weird. There was a sequence there in the second quarter where he got like five or six wide-open jump shots in a row, and he didn't even hit the rim on his first like four or five jump shots in the first quarter. Something happened there. I have no idea. He completely lost his rhythm. It was really weird. Like he had this weird hitch in his shot. It looked like he wasn't following through all the way. He had like back to back, completely wide open threes on the right wing. One that he shot to the ceiling, like just unnaturally shot it really high in the air and then got offensive rebound ended back in his hand. And he shot it like wide left, like a kicker shanking a field goal. And like, you could just tell, like he got the yips all of a sudden. And the same shots that he had been making all first quarter and all season just completely left his repertoire, and it was disastrous for Toronto's offense. Pascal Siakam missed three easy layups right around the rim to start the second quarter. He completely lost confidence in his jump shot. There was a play where he did a pick and pop with Fred Van Vliet and popped to the three-point line, caught the ball at the top of the key. Joel Embiid was sitting at the charge circle, just completely ignoring him and he didn't even take the shot because he completely lost confidence in his jump shot. Those two guys falling apart offensively completely disrupted the Toronto offense, made it so that they couldn't score, made it so that uh, Philly was attacking in transition, and it was disastrous for them. A huge part of that was Tyrese Maxey. Another quick, really quick shout out to him. He's kind of like a one-man transition attack. He's one of the fastest guards that we have in this league. And every time Toronto missed, he was just pushing the pace and was getting amazing stuff on that front. Before we move on from this series, I do want to complain. I do want to complain for just a minute about Joel Embiid and the way that he's officiated. And but before we get into that specifically, I wanted to show you guys a clip from Joel Embiid's postgame presser because he kind of got into it a little bit with Nick Nurse on the sideline, and this was what Joel Embiid had to say after the game. Oh, man, he's, he's a great coach, obviously. I, I got to, you know, what he's been able to accomplish, and, you know, I've always been a big fan. Um, but, you know, I, I told him, uh, you know, uh, respectfully, uh, told him uh, uh, to stop bitching about 
Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started to see a little more of your scalp? Are you unhappy with your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many root causes at play, and Nutrafol addresses them through a multi-targeted, whole-body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole-body health. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription, or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker and healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription. And free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code Hoops, that's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Hoops, H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Hoops. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. It's something that I've always been a big believer in. When Usually when you try to take on a project that you don't know how to do, it ends up just being a bigger headache as you try to learn and then you end up making mistakes and it ends up just not being worth it. Not only can a professional get the job done more efficiently, but you're also supporting local businesses in your area. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience, combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects easy. Angie has cost guides to tell you what others have paid for similar projects both nationally and in your area. The app is free and easy to use. We all know the difficulties that can come with home projects. Angie makes tackling your project as simple as possible from start to finish. Turn to Angie with confidence, even for major renovations or emergency repairs. Are you renting? Even renters can come to Angie for moving installations and cleaning. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com or download the app today. Calls, uh, <laughs> uh, because I saw what he said last game. And Joel Embiid has been so, like, I don't even know what the right word is for this. I'd, I'd say insecure. You could tell he's been a little bit insecure about this because he went on the JJ Reddick podcast the other day and was talking about how it was his intelligence and how smart he was that allowed him to be able to do these things to generate free throws. And I think it's just a massive problem with the way that he's officiated. And for the record, I don't necessarily blame him. I don't like his attitude about it. His whole obstinate like, 
uh, you know, this isn't my problem. This is your problem. You guys are hacking me. This is all your fault. That thing is something that I vehemently dislike. And I'm sure most of you guys do as well, unless you're a Philadelphia 76er fan. But it's not his fault. It's the league's fault. There is, like it or not, officiating is about making judgment calls. Nothing is cut and dry. There's contact on every single play. One of the biggest things that pisses me off when people start talking about NBA history is when they say things like, oh, well, there was no hand checking before, or you wouldn't get fouled, called for a foul for hand checking before 2004. Yes, you would. Hand checking was put into the NBA rule book in the 70s. There was a rule in like 1978 that said you weren't allowed to impede progress with your hands. But throughout NBA history, from 1978 or whatever, all the way to now, there has always been an ebb and flow with that judgment call. When a guy puts his hand on you, the ref decides whether or not he's going to call it. It's not called every single time. At various points in NBA history, the game gets more physical or it gets less physical. It's never been one specific era where it was crazy. Everyone talks about the Michael Jordan era and how crazy physical the game was. It was from like 1995 to you know 2003, but for the first 11, 12 years of MJ's career, it was pretty wide open. Not a lot of defense was being played. That, that I've, Officiating has always been about the judgment call. And what bothers me is Joel Embiid initiates a lot of contact on every single possession. And if we're going by the book, those are offensive fouls. And I don't want them to be called offensive fouls. All I'm asking is for the contact that comes in return, the aggression matching the aggression, I don't want that to be called. You know, LeBron fans incessantly complain about him not getting foul calls. I have always thought LeBron was officiated fairly. Why? Because the dude's a bull in a china shop. LeBron James is beating the hell out of you on his way to the rim. He's whipping you with his, with his off arm. He's caving in your chest with his shoulder. And I don't want that stuff called offensive foul, but I just don't care that people hit him back. To me, that's the give and the take. That's the judgment call. And to, to LeBron's credit, he doesn't flop nearly as much as those guys. I know he has a reputation for some super dramatic flops in his past. Plenty of them have made viral videos. But for the most part, when LeBron f drives into the lane, he's not as, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, he's not crazy with the histrionics. Joel Embiid literally on every layup around the rim kicks both of his legs up. Like his heels almost touch his butt when he's shooting a layup underneath the rim because he's flailing and, and screaming and trying to draw fouls. There was a play in that game where uh, uh, Joel Embiid was posting up Precious Achua, literally caves in his chest with a hard elbow right to the rib cage and goes up with a hook shot, misses it. But it's off the short part of the rim and lands right back in his hands. And Precious Achua gets turned around. And Precious Achua is just standing there with his arms up. And Joel Embiid goes up and lightly bumps into Precious's arm and gets an and one. No call at all for the, the massive elbow to the chest but we're going to call Precious for this slight little bump under the basket. And again, I'm not saying call the foul on the chicken wing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let some give a little, take a little. If you're going to let Joel Embiid initiate a ton of contact around the basket, you have to let people hit him back. If you're going to start calling ticky-tack fouls on every single time a player touches him around the basket, then you have to start calling Joel Embiid every time he does a drop step. And I know you don't want to do that. And most importantly, it's bad for the flow of the game of basketball. 
This is a take I've had for a long time, and Philly fans get super upset about it, but this is the reality. It is important for the health of the game of basketball for Philly to lose. If it's not in this round, it needs to happen in the next round. Why? Because this kind of basketball is a terrible television product. The pace of the game gets strangled. You're constantly watching Joel Embiid and, J and James Harden go to the free throw line. No fan of any basketball in the entire world likes watching Joel Embiid, the biggest, most athletic freak at the center position we've had in ages, kick his legs literally like he's a flailing jump shooter when he's shooting layups underneath the basket. It's bad for the game. I love Joel Embiid's game. I just want to see him play basketball. I love James Harden's game. I just want to see him play basketball. I don't want to see this foul grifting. It's un it is absolutely bad for the game of basketball. All right, I'm off my soapbox. We're going to bring my guy Carson on, and we're going to play some games. How are you doing, Jason? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm fantastic. Love to hear you on your soapbox. I think, you know, I think you're <laughs> in the right there. All right, so we are going to play a game. It's a pretty simple one called Good Call, Bad Call. I'm going to present a decision to you. You tell me if it's a good call or a bad call. We're going to get right into it with the heavy stuff here, the hard-hitting question. Good call or bad call? To name your dog after yourself as the great Anthony Edwards did with his dog, Anthony Edwards Jr. He named his dog Anthony Edwards Jr.? Oh, yeah. Oh, my he gosh. He certainly did. Twitter sensation, Anthony Edwards Jr. Okay, I... I I only have one rule with dog names, and it's it can't be a person name. Like it has to be at all. The, at all, like it has to be like at the very least in the gray area of what might be mm. considered a person name. But like when you're getting into like you can't name a dog Anthony. Okay, like come on, that's that's completely ridiculous. All right, uh, Anthony Edwards just lost some points in my book. I gotta say, really, I feel like there are. Human names that could be dog names. I could name my dog Bruce. You know, I named one of my dogs Hudson. But I have to disagree with you here. I support everything that Ann Edwards does. He's my favorite NBA personality. He's got it all. He's a dog. He's hilarious. He's honest. So, all right. I think it's a good call. All right. I gotta yeah. admit that I'm a hypocrite here because I've got a I've got a female dog and her name is Casey. So I think that's a I I, I have now been yeah. caught with my foot in my mouth. I'm a I'm a hypocrite. People names are okay. I'm just not okay with Anthony. <laughs> okay. Fair. Well, at least you owned up to it there. All right. Good call or bad call, Jason, for the Nets to bring back Ben Simmons as early as Monday, which is now a possibility. I'm going to go with good call. I watched a lot of film on the Celtics and the Nets today, and there was a considerable amount of defensive breakdowns on the back end. A huge problem that the Nets had, and we'll get into this a little bit deeper later in the show, is Kevin Durant wants to guard Jason Tatum. And I disagree with that from a strategy standpoint, but Kevin Durant's a very important part of their defense with his ability to disrupt shots around the rim. And if he keeps getting dragged out to the perimeter on these double teams of Tatum and on these, you know, Tatum bringing the ball up the floor as a point guard, while guys like Jalen Brown are driving to the rim with no help, it's going to be a problem. So you have one of two things that you can do. You you can put Kevin Durant on someone else so that he can be more of a helper around the basket, but then you need someone on Tatum. And so getting Ben Simmons is just a guy who can do what Kevin Durant does defensively on the perimeter so that Kevin Durant can do what Kevin Durant does defensively around the basket, it would change the dynamic of the Nets' defense in this series. And so I think if if Ben Simmons is ready to go and the medical staff doesn't think that him playing could further compromise his ability to play next year, you got to bring him back.
how much does that raise the Nets' defensive ceiling and just make their job easier winning the series? Because obviously stopping you know those high-level scoring wings is so important. And then you got a pretty darn good defensive wing tandem with Simmons and Katie out there. Absolutely. It it is a huge huge ceiling raiser. You know, Brooklyn had no trouble scoring against Boston in the half court. I've heard a lot of people say things like, "Oh, they wasted a good Kyrie game." And my thing is like, "Have you watched Kyrie's playoff career? Are you expecting him to go out and lay an egg in game 2?" I mean, he might. It's not like it's it's not like it's out of the realm of possibility, but like Kyrie has like multiple three, four game stretches in his playoff career where he just doesn't miss shots. <laughs> so like there's yeah. <laughs> the Kyrie absolutely is still going to be a factor in the series as it goes along. And Kevin Durant, again, we're going to talk about this a little more later. Kevin Durant had a disastrous game, like utterly disastrous. He was fumbling the ball all over the court, making so many mistakes. He had a bad defensive game as well. Kevin Durant's going to be so much better. But I talked a lot before the series. I said that the Brooklyn offense was one of the best offenses in the league, and the Boston defense was one of the best defenses in the league. And then on the other end of the floor, Boston is a slightly above average half-court offense, and the Brooklyn Nets are a slightly above average half-court defense. So if mm -hmm. I could turn Brooklyn's half-court defense into a good half-court defense, that could be a huge swing in this series. So I, I, think, the ben, I've, I think the Ben Simmons thing would be a massive change for this series. All right, so as we talk about this series and specifically some of the defensive dynamics, Marcus Smart was given depoy today. They had a whole thing with Gary Payton coming in, did it on the TNT broadcast. So, Jason, is that a good call or bad call? I feel bad saying bad call because Marcus Smart played the best possible defensive season that a guard could play. Yeah. So... I hope let me just I'll just I'll just say it. Marcus Smart, unbelievable season, one of the best guard defensive seasons I've ever seen. Kudos, man. You deserve an award. But the you know, who who really put me onto this was Joel Embiid. And this is what frustrates me so much about his foul grifting, because I like so much about him as a basketball player. And he was talking with JJ Reddick about how big man should win defensive player of the year. And he made a case that swayed me. And I 100% agree with him. And his case was, our job as the big man on the back line of the defense is to quarterback the defense, to call out coverages. We're supposed to memorize the plays that the other team runs so that we can call them out, so that the other guys on the floor know what's coming. The defensive role of the big man under the basket is so remarkably important and carries additional responsibilities over what the guards do. You know, it's like football. Like, you could have OBJ come out and just have the best season a receiver could possibly have. But I right. wouldn't give him offensive MVP because the, the, the role of the quarterback in navigating the game, the flow of the game, his role making pre-snap decisions and trying to determine where the blitz is coming from and trying to determine whether or not they're going zone coverage or man coverage or whether or not they're trying to disguise that coverage. There's so many important responsibilities that fall on the lap of the quarterback that it's to me it's kind of impossible for a quarterback not to be the MVP of the league. They have to be in my opinion. And so it's the same concept here. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So like, for instance, when I was in college, we would run a specific uh, a pick and roll coverage on the left side of the floor and on the right side of the floor. And then when we were in the middle of the floor, we'd run a completely different coverage. We had to 
we literally would spend the entire week before the game memorizing the other team's plays because when you don't know where screens are coming from, they catch you off guard. It is extremely difficult to navigate screens when you do know where they're coming from, especially for a guy like me who was six foot six. I had a hard time navigating over screens. It's really hard for bigger guys. So you, it helps to know where they're coming from. And the job of the big man behind the play, because when you're picking up the point guard, is the point guard's coming up the floor. So Marcus Smart's guarding Kyrie Irving tomorrow. Kyrie Irving's bringing the ball up the floor. He's picking him up at half court. It's He doesn't know what's happening behind him. He doesn't know what kind of coverage or what kind of screening action Kevin Durant's using to get open on the weak side. He doesn't know if they're setting up some kind of backdoor lob. It is the job of Al Horford, whoever it is in that position for the Celtics on any given possession, to call out what coverages are being used, to call out the play that's being used. So I I tend to agree with Joel Embiid that it has to be a big man. And so because of that, I would have gone with somebody like a a like a Rudy Gobert or or like a Bam Adebayo or even Jaron Jackson mm-hmm. before I go to someone like Marcus Smart. And the last thing I'll say about it is like I know as the league moves into this five out era perimeter defense becomes remarkably important. But it's not like the old days where you'd put Bruce Brown or Bruce Bowen, excuse me, on the other team's best player and have him guard him the entire game or put, you know, Meta World Peace, Ron Artest on the other team's mm-hmm. best player, he guards him the whole game. Teams are so smart now that like it's pretty rare for you to attack the other team's best player with your best player. They're going to find some way to get him off of you. And so unfortunately, that perimeter defense player, even though they are still extremely valuable. They're just not as valuable as that backline guy, and I'm always going to go that way. So I would have given the defensive player of the year to Rudy Gobert this year. So you're not just talking about pure guards there. Like if there's a wing like Pete Kawhi, who obviously won back-to-back depoys, same So, you know, I used to advocate all the time for LeBron to get defensive player of the year. And I was wrong about that. Like just to, just to come straight out because I didn't understand that yet. And to kudos to Joe LMB for breaking it down in a way that I thought was so important. And it's funny because I had all those pieces of information. I had access to those pieces of information the whole time, but I just didn't put two and two together. Like I literally played college basketball in that setting. My center was a guy named Mateus Oliveira. He called out every coverage and I just didn't put that together. And, and, and so I was wrong to advocate for LeBron in those years. Kawhi should not have won it in those years. The quarter, what, and it, you know, unless, and this is the difference, unless within the Spurs system, Kawhi's job was to be the quarterback of the defense. I just don't think right. that was the case because it's very difficult for a wing to be in the correct spots on the floor to be able to call out coverages. And so, for, right. and just listen, like you listen to the big guys on the floor, even, even when they're not mic'd up, you can hear them yell ice, 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 or you can hear them yell drop, drop, drop. You can hear them yell their coverage out. I loved how they mic'd up Joel Embiid tonight. It was kind of a perfect little uh, setup for this conversation. So you can kind of see the way Joel Embiid navigates that over the course of the game, screaming out. You there, were, there was a sequence where he was like yelling out, double, double, double. He's literally telling where the screens are coming from, where, you know, how many screens there are. His, his job is so incredibly important. And, and that, that just has to be factored in in this kind of thing, I think. So who would you have given Depoy to this year? Rudy Gobert, if Bam, Bam, you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about Rudy Gobert and the Utah Jazz here in just a minute because I know when everybody mm-hmm. I, when I say that I know all of you are immediately going to hey this is horseshit the the Jazz suck how can you give it to Rudy Gobert but 
Rudy Gobert is not the reason why the Utah Jazz defense sucks. We'll get into that in a minute. The only reason I'm not getting into guys like Bam Adebayo is he didn't play enough games. Jaron Jackson Jr. was amazing defensively for parts of the season, but also he played a lot of his minutes with Steven Adams, and I think Steven Adams was more of the quarterback for them. I think Jaron Jackson Jr. could be a, def- a defense player of the year in the future. To me, like it's kind of an imperfect field of candidates, kind of similar to the MVP debate. You're picking a flawed candidate, but I'm going to pick the flawed candidate that I know is one of the best defense players in the league, and it's going to be Rudy Gobert. Had he stayed healthy, I would have gone to Draymond. Mm-hmm. So what were sort of your thoughts on that Mavs-Jazz game today then? So, you know, there there's a, a persistent need among basketball fans around the world, especially on Twitter, to make fun of the Jazz at Rudy Gobert's expense. He's he's the punching bag. And I fell into this too a little bit before I started covering the league more closely, back when I would only see Rudy Gobert in small doses. And special credit to a guy named Ben Dowsett who covers the Jazz. And you guys got to check him out if you're not already following him. But he sent me a ton of film and broke it down for me in detail, the specific flaws that the Utah Jazz defense has. But the gist of it is, They are a terrible defensive team around Rudy Gobert. And as a result, very simple actions utterly compromise the Jazz defense. And as a result, you see these guys scoring at will, and you see uh, Rudy Gobert kind of seeming hapless and, and ineffective. And it's easy to just immediately go that route. Like, oh, look at Rudy Gobert, his man scoring every single time. But like at the end of that game, they just took Dwight Powell off the floor. They put Maxine Kleber in the corner, and they had four guys that could shoot around him. Spencer Dinwiddie, Jalen Brunson, Reggie Bullock, and Dorian Finney-Smith. And then what they would do is have the ball on one of the wings, usually the left wing, and they'd put Maxine Kleber in the right corner. So at that point, Rudy Gobert is in a tough position because he's the help side defender. So he's got to be there to cover for the drives. But Maxine Kleba's in the corner, and he's made a bunch of threes already tonight. But Spencer Dinwiddie's going right around his man to the basket. Jalen Brunson's going right around his man to the basket. So if Rudy Gobert guards Maxine Kleber in the corner, and Spencer Dinwiddie gets six wide-open layups, are you guys going to suddenly decide to not slander Rudy Gobert? Rudy's doing his job. There's no defense in the league that should allow one drive and kick to get wide open three after wide open three in the NBA playoffs. No defense worth their salt should do that. There were a bunch of plays where Boyan Bogdanovich is literally 10 feet away from Maxine Kleber in that corner and doesn't bother to rotate over and guard the shooter. There, like That's just embarrassing effort defensively around Rudy Gobert. They're tissue paper at the point of attack, giving up straight line drive after straight line drive to, you know, Jalen Brunson is a great player. We're going to talk about him here in a minute. Spencer Dinwiddie's having a rough series, but he's, you know, he's, he's, those two guys are not high level perimeter guys. They're not Kyrie Irving. They're not Donovan Mitchell. They're not John Morant. And they're just getting to the paint every time they want. And Rudy Gobert has to step over and help. And it's an easy kick out for a three-point shot every single time. And like I talk about all the time, your defense should be able to give up a straight-line drive. But you have to rotate on the back end. 
at the very least, make them pass it around three or four times before they get a wide open three. It like, you know, <laughs> Luka, Luka Doncic needs to go buy all these guys a steak dinner. Because I said on the show the other day that I didn't know that they could win a game without Luka. And I thought their only chance was Luka coming back in game three and pulling this series out in seven games. And the Jazz might have just nuked even that. Because they had no business losing this basketball game. But this is... it. it you know, I don't know if it's Quinn Snyder's fault that their weak side rotations are so bad. Or if it's just a lack of commitment. Or if it's a personnel issue. I mean, it could very well be a personnel issue. Mike Conley's a small guard that doesn't cover a lot of ground. Jordan Clarkson is a good scoring guard. He was killing them tonight with that little short step back in the lane. That little eight-foot step back. But he's not a great defensive player. Boyan Bogdanovich is actually okay in isolation defense against bigger wings, but he's not good covering a lot of ground on the back end. It's really Rudy Gobert covering for his teammates. And in the dregs of the regular season, when they can run drop coverage all night long, and when Rudy Gobert, because teams aren't scheming appropriately for it, he can sit around in the paint, they're going to have success. Guys, like Dwight Powell played the vast majority of, of minutes at the five for this team over the course of the season. So for a lot of like the day-in, day-out regular season stuff, that's Dwight Powell. That's Rudy Gobert sitting under the basket, and they're shutting him down. Game one of this series, they played uh, two shifts of uh, Dwight Powell at the start of the quarter. Then they tried to bring him in for offensive-defensive swaps, but Dwight Powell was on the floor for a lot of offensive possessions in that fourth quarter, and it caused him problems. But you know what you do in the playoffs? You make adjustments. They made a simple adjustment. They went away from Dwight Powell. They went smaller with four score guys that could shoot and Maxine Kleba, a big who can shoot. And that was all it took to completely and utterly compromise Utah Jazz defense with a pretty average group of offensive players. And so I I have to def I have to come to the defense of Rudy Gobert here. He is still, in my opinion, in that top tier of defensive players in the league. I think it's him and Draymond. Two very different guys in a lot of different ways. I think Rudy obviously has the better set of tools. Draymond, I think, has the bigger defensive basketball brain. But those two guys are the best defensive players in the league, and Rudy Gobert is still every bit in that conversation. He just has a garbage defensive team. And every time they suck on defense, he's the one who gets blamed. Last shout-out I wanted to, to, to have on this particular game was Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson averaged eight points a game in the Clippers series last year. He was utterly shut down by Nick Batum. Could not create his own shot. And, you know, it'd be easy to get discouraged there. And he had a pretty rough game one. I talked a lot after that game about how much more difficult it is to be a primary offensive option than a secondary offensive option. Or a secondary offensive option than a third defense or offensive option. Look at how bad Spencer Dinwiddie is. It has been in this series. And he's just stepping into a secondary role. But Jalen Brunson was awesome tonight. And this is the other part of the Utah Jazz defensive scheme. It's a drop coverage. A lot of what... Jalen Brunson was getting was just here comes Maxine Kleba to set a screen and you know or, or Dwight Powell to set a screen and there's Rudy Gobert dropping into the paint and here's Jalen Brunson shooting a wide open jump shot at the top of the key and he's knocking it down and it was just an unbelievable from him you know I was things were getting bleak for for Dallas and they needed something to just inject a little bit of life into them to get them to the light at the end of the tunnel that is Luka Doncic coming back. And they came out again tonight with just an unbelievable defensive performance. And then Maxine Kleba and, and, and Jalen Brunson just took the game home. And Spencer Dinwiddie also had a 
huge spinning hook shot in the lane for having a rough night. He made a huge play at the end of that game. One last really, really quick note on that game. You guys always hear me talk about the value of rim pressuring forwards. You know, when little guards struggle to create their own shot in playoff series, it's always these 6'8", 6'9", guys that could turn their back to the basket that end up having success. And I didn't think it was a coincidence that when the Utah Jazz's offense was faltering late, they were able to throw it to Bogdanovich. And he was just taking turnaround jump shots over smaller defenders, and he was making them. That's a huge value piece in these types of matchups. It's a it's actually a huge thing that's missing from the Warriors' offense. They don't have that big wing that they can dump the ball to in the post, and he can create shots for himself. That's a, a weakness on a lot of teams around the league, but it is a strength of this particular Utah Jazz team. It's not going to be enough, but he's a guy that if you could poach him from Utah, he's a guy that I'd love to have on a roster as just an option to attack mismatches in these late playoff series. All right, guys, before we head out of here for the night, we're going to bring my guy Carson back on for Holder Bale. Yeah, so like you said, Jason, we're playing Holder Bale. We played this yesterday. We're checking in on your pre-series predictions and seeing if you want to hold or bail on any of these. We're going to start with Heat Hawks. You took the Heat in five before the series started. They dominated game one. Are you holding or bailing on that? Absolutely holding. Um, they might even sweep them. We'll see. Atlanta seems to be coming apart at the seams a little bit. A little shout out to PJ Tucker. Watching the film from that game, I couldn't help but be reminded of the way he physically caused problems for Kevin Durant in last year's playoff run. I think one of the most common things that happens with championship teams, we see this with the Lakers in the last couple of years, and you've seen it a little bit with the Bucks this year. And you saw it with the Dallas Mavericks in 2011 after they won with Dirk. They undervalue what their role players bring to the table and how it helps them win. And, you know, I think it was PJ Tucker was a great get for Miami. He's a very, very effective playoff player, and it's been cool seeing him have success again in another environment. Yeah. All right. Speaking of PJ Tucker and obviously what he meant to the Bucks last year. You took the Bucks in four to sweep the Bulls. They did squeak out game one, probably a little too close for comfort. Are you holding or bailing with that prediction? So I'm holding with the Bucks winning the series, but I, I am bailing in the sense that I do think Chicago is going to get a game. I think they mm-hmm. figured out some stuff defensively in game one that they can, that they can ride forward. And you could not have gotten a more disastrous offensive game from all three of their stars. Right. Uh, we talked a lot about the Zach Levine and 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 uh, um, and Demar Derozan forcing shots off the dribble rather than making reads to their teammates. And then Vucevic was getting wide open threes all night long, and he went two for ten. So there, there's there's some issues there that I think they they'll be able to overcome. One last note on this series, you know, Chris Middleton had a rough game one. And Drew Holiday was really inconsistent in last year's playoff run. If you guys remember, he was pretty bad offensively throughout the entire series, throughout the entire run. And then he had some good defensive moments in the finals. You know, I talked a lot about how the Bucks run this year was going to be harder, and it will. They're gonna they they have an easy first round series, but they're gonna have to go through Boston after this, and then after that they're gonna have to go through either Philly or Miami, and then after that they're gonna have to go through a much better version of the Phoenix team. That, they, that almost beat them last year. And so the inconsistency from Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday is not going to fly. Those guys are going to have to figure out a way to bring their best more frequently, or I think this Bucks team is going to get beat at some point down the line. Yeah, and it did feel like that was a huge question kind of throughout the early goings of the playoff run is 
last year was would the Bucks get that consistent production from those two? And obviously they got it when they needed it most, but definitely agree with you there. All right. Well, you mentioned the Suns. You took them to sweep the Pelicans before the series. They were pretty convincing throughout game one and a win. Are you holding or bailing with that prediction? Holding. They're going to sweep them. Um, I wanted to give a special shout out to CP3 here. While we were recording the show, because we came on last night before that game ended, I don't know if you saw that video, Carson, but uh, CP3 went on a run where like about six or seven possessions in a row, he just ran high pick and roll with uh, JaVale McGee and DeAndre Ayton and scored every single time. (laughs) Like yeah, every single time against a against a good uh, uh, Pelicans defense, and you know I can say all the usual stuff like oh, I can't believe he's thirty seven years old and he's still doing this. Oh, you know he's the point god. All that blah blah blah. The thing that I want to say is like, you know, basketball in so many ways gets overcomplicated, but there are in in it is a very complex game on a bunch of different levels, but there are simple things to it. And like Chris Paul is such a savant at understanding what works and what doesn't. And the high pick and roll is such a simple action. And teams have a certain number of options that they can go to guarding it. It usually involves either overplaying the roll man or overplaying the ball handler. And when you're playing the ball handler, it either, it either involves taking away the drive or taking away the jump shot. And that in that sequence, it was like every time they went under the screen, he just pulled a three and he made them. Every time they went over the screen, he just kind of methodically worked his way through the lane, and uh, he he made a couple layups. He had like a crazy little fadeaway along the right along the right block, and then there was a play where like he kind of stunted at the screen and then pulled back, and both guys came to him and just easy little bounce pass to Javale McGee. Now he's dunking, and like it's just he made it look so easy, and it's because like even though he's not the fastest guy, even though he's not the biggest guy in the world, even though he's not even necessarily like like his three point shot can be inconsistent from time to time. The dude is just. A, is he's one of the smartest guys in the league. You know, the guy that I'd compare him the most to is LeBron. He's point guard LeBron. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I shout out, special shout-out to Chris Paul. Yeah, I mean, you said it. It's just like the making it easy. It's the control, the poise out of the pick and roll. And just the fact that you know, like, yeah, he'll average 13 a game in the regular season or whatever, but he can easily kick that up to 20 at will because it's just he gets a good look out of the pick and roll every single time, and you trust his shot making so much. All right. Now we've arrived at the granddaddy of them all, Nets Celtics. You took the Nets in seven before the series. Jason, are you holding or bailing on that? I'm holding. I'm going to still go with Nets in seven. Um, I have a bunch of thoughts on this this particular series, but we're going to get into this in more detail after game two. I want to I just hit on one thing with, with Kevin Durant because he has to find a way to be better defensively. And some of that was his effort and focus. He was just, I think he was a little shell-shocked in game one. Not in like a, oh, I'm nervous kind of way. I think he just, I think he just kind of tried to ease his way into the series and got kind of punched in the mouth a little bit. But he has to find a way to be more impactful defensively. And with how often the Nets are double-teaming Tatum, which is on almost every possession, I don't see the point of putting Kevin Durant on Tatum. Because it's hurting them in the sense that he's not available to help on the back line. And you can't, even though Tatum's, even though Durant's your best option to throw at Tatum, if you're going to double team him anyway, you can get away with a lesser option. On the, I talked a lot about how they made a handful of really big mistakes at the end of that game. And I looked back at the film. Again, 
Boston's offense utterly fell apart in that fourth quarter. And a lot of that was on Tatum. And I'll get into that more tomorrow. But, you know, but because of Tatum's struggles, they were struggling to score. And there were a handful of plays where Jalen Brown killed them. And it was just sloppy defensive mistakes. There was a Bruce Brown had a bad closeout on Jalen Brown where he drove by for a dunk. There was a play, they literally missed a free throw. Nick Claxton was shooting a free throw. So your defense should be set. And on the play, Kevin Durant and Nick, uh, uh, Kevin Durant, his job is to get back to the paint. He was above the key. Claxton was above the key. And on a free throw, Jalen Brown drove right by everybody and went to the basket and got an easy layup with no nets on the back line. That's like just stupid, sloppy laziness, but it's also that bad scheme of having Kevin Durant away from the basket for too long. And then on the second to last play, when it was 114-111, right after Kyrie makes the step back, literally... Jalen Brown is facing up on Bruce Brown on the right wing and Kevin Durant's guarding Jason Tatum all the way on the right side of the basket. They have Al Horford run up off the ball and set a screen for Tatum away from the play, literally on the left wing, 35 feet from the basket. And it's a Horford-Tatum little off-ball screen. Kevin Durant and Nick Claxton both run all the way out, 35 feet away. And they're, it, now we're playing three-on-three. And there's tons of space. There's nobody at the basket. And Jalen Brown just literally takes an easy move to the basket. I think it ended up being Goran Dragic who was in help. And he stood no chance at stopping Jalen Brown. So there was there were some huge defensive breakdowns at the end of that game that I thought were just a product of really poor strategy on the part of the Nets. I think they're going to be able to clean that stuff up. So I, I still I still lean the Nets, even though they tricked off game one, I still think the Nets are going to come back and win this series in seven games. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. As always, I appreciate your guys' support. We will be back right after the final game tomorrow night. I will see you guys then. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.